Stephanie Hillwack is the media director at the Poetry Foundation based in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thank you for having me. To start with, perhaps you could give me a bit of history. Sure. Although the Poetry Foundation itself is only about 10 years old, the history of the foundation dates back uh, much, much longer, in fact, 100 years, to October 1912. And that's when the first issue of Poetry Magazine was published here in Chicago. So we're here to the month. To the month. 100 years. It's after. a fantastic time to visit us. Yes, we are <laughs> celebrating the centennial of Poetry Magazine. Okay. Poetry Magazine was first published here in Chicago by a woman named Harriet Monroe. And it survived and never missed an issue for about 90 years. It survived, I say, because it was always somewhat on the brink of collapse. It was always rescued at the last moment by uh, friends of the magazine, and it uh, sort of just got by. In 2002, uh, a wealthy philanthropist who had submitted poems to the magazine over the years but had never been published in its pages gave the magazine a bit of a surprise. Uh, Ruth Lilly had been endowing various prizes with the magazine for a number of years, uh, but the gift that she ultimately gave in 2002 was unprecedented in in literary history, if you will. She bestowed on the magazine about $200 million. And from that gift, the Poetry Foundation was born. Our president likes to say that uh, the magazine it was in the unusual position of giving birth to its own parent. And the reason that the foundation was formed was to administer this gift and to decide how to best spend this incredible endowment. The Poetry Foundation uh, formed in 2002 currently acts as the publisher of Poetry Magazine, and Poetry Magazine remains the flagship program of all that we do here, and it informs the work that we do in so many ways. The endowment is very carefully protected and thoughtfully spent because the purpose of that endowment is to make sure that the magazine can publish in perpetuity. So uh, we're sitting here on uh, the 100th anniversary of Poetry Magazine, but uh, we imagine that there will be a 200th and a 300th anniversary as well. So all of this is to say that the magazine is the most important program of the foundation and, again, informs much of the work that we do. So it goes back to Harriet. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote from Harriet Mm -hmm. that's printed on the walls as one comes in to the building that refers to identifying the best poems ones that are best not because of the fact that they might belong to any particular school or group. I, I wonder if you could speak to that, because it is, a, it is somewhat controversial. And it'd be interesting to know what kind of judgment that she used to identify, as she did, some of the truly great poets of, of the 20th century. Sure. You're referring to Harriet's open-door policy, and I will read it now. The open door will be the policy of this magazine. May the great poet we are looking for never find it shut or half shut against his ample genius. To this end, the editors hope to keep free of entangling alliances with any single class or school. They desire to print the best English verse which is being written today, regardless of where, by whom, or under what theory of art it's written. And those were her words in 1912. You know, at the time when Harriet was writing this, she really meant to give poets a place to publish their work in a way that hadn't existed before. Harriet founded the magazine um, at a time when 
all of the other arts, especially here in Chicago, which was and is the birthplace of modernism, if you will, art was hung in museums and there was important things happening in that world. Uh, the city of Chicago was then and is still now known for its incredible architecture. Musicians were able to play in symphony halls, singers at the Lyric Opera, but there wasn't a place for poetry. So this idea of poetry in place actually dates back to the magazine as being a destination for poetry. And now here we are in Chicago 100 years later in an actual building for Chicago. Mm -hmm. So when Harriet wrote about and wished for poets to have a place, I'm sure she never imagined this, but she did imagine a space that was welcoming and open to poets of all kinds. So that you didn't have to have gone to Oxford or exactly. you didn't have to know anyone particularly to get published. And that's still the case today. Yeah. The magazine editors receive about 140,000 submissions right. every year. And there are about 300 poems published in its pages. <laughs> However, about a third of those poems are from poets who have either neither, never published in the magazine before or never published in general. So the editors take very seriously this idea of discovery and celebration. The legacy of, of Harriet Monroe is, of course, that she discovered some of the poets that we know very well as, as the leading lights of their generation. Of the 20th century. Yeah. Ezra Pound was her um, foreign correspondent, and he sent her uh, T.S. Eliot. And so, you know, these poets that we now associate so deeply with modernism and 20th century American poetry are discoveries of Harriet. So I guess the question is, I'll just put it out there, mm -hmm. this idea of best seems to me to be pretty important to her. I wonder how she went about determining what she thought was the best. Well, I can't speak for her, um, and I, I can't speak for the editors today, but I do know that, from my perspective at least, the best is about you know, taking great risks and great leaps. One of the most famous poems published in the early days of Poetry Magazine in June 1915 was T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Pufrock. And for months after that, Harriet received scathing criticism and hate mail and all, all sorts of letters of concern that that was not poetry. It didn't rhyme. It didn't have a meter. It didn't, it didn't conform to what people thought was poetry. And so that risk turned out to be one of the most important decisions she probably made in that, you know, now it's a poem that everyone knows and everyone knows. And Ellis. loves. And yeah. loves. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not everyone, but <laughs> right. anyone with taste. <laughs> I think that what is important about this idea of best is that indeed it is a little bit slippery. You know, what's best to someone may not be best to another. But I suppose the mere fact that your editors are identifying what they think is mm -hmm. best in itself is provocative. And I would imagine that might be part of what they're up to as well, trying to get people to think and talk about poetry. Absolutely, and that's the work that we really want to do here at the Foundation, is to create and grow audiences for poetry. We want to encourage the reading of poetry. We want to encourage poetry in American culture, and you know, we do that through the various programs of our Foundation, the magazine being the organ, if you will, that really does continue to discover and put forth poets who we hope will be read 100 years from now. The thing about the magazine, though, is that it isn't really that innovative. It is an important traditional method of getting new voices out. Perhaps you could talk a bit about innovative ways that you might have 
been trying to use this endowment to reach new audiences? Sure. So in addition to the magazine, we have an extraordinarily extensive website, poetryfoundation.org, that has about uh, 10,000 poems in its archive that have all been curated by our online editors. So chosen? Yes, absolutely. In addition to that, there is the full 100-year run of Poetry Magazine in in its original form. In addition to that, there's numerous learning resources and podcasts and Uh, videos and all kinds of things, we get about um, a million unique visitors to our website every month. So we're on track to break 12 million or so visitors this year, and our traffic comes from all over the globe, and it's it's a real resource that is available for free to people on the web. Here in our building, of course, uh, in Chicago, we have live events. We also run a national high school poetry recitation contest by partnering with the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts. And what that program is is a nationwide competition, sort of in the style of a spelling bee, that starts at the school level and goes all the way up to the national level. Are you going to make one of those documentary films about... (laughs) Well... uh, (laughs) Because they did that for the spelling bee, I know, didn't they? Sure. And crossword puzzle... The program will actually be celebrating its 10th anniversary in two years. That is an idea that, you know, we've batted around. In the meantime, over the course of the seven years that it's currently run, uh, more than a million students have participated in it across the country. Last year, about 365,000 students entered the competition, and a champion was crowned in May of this year in D.C., and the process will be repeated next year. So get them um, while they're young. <laughs> well, that's one of the um, findings of a scientific research study that the foundation undertook in um, about 2005, mm-hmm. which was to look at American attitudes towards poetry. And one of the findings was that readers who are introduced to poetry at a younger age are more likely to be lifelong readers of poetry. And so that's something that we're really interested in cultivating is a lifelong love of poetry. Especially boys. Uh, I might be wrong, but there, there might be this sort of not a stigma, but it's just for sissies. I imagine you want to try and overcome that. My sense is that the competition is as attractive to boys as it is to girls. Our champions over the years have been both young men and women. Um, to participate in the uh, competition, the students memorize three poems. The act of memorization is, is a method of learning that I think has, is not as popular as it once was. You know, That's because you can Google everything. Right? <laughs> But we really hope that in memorizing these poems, these students take this poem with them and keep them with them for life. So why, why is poetry so important then? Well, poetry, I think, is an art form that people reach to, to explain and to articulate things that they themselves cannot. Our president, John Barr, has often said that poetry is something that people reach for at the highs and lows of their lives. Poetry is something that we read at weddings, but also, of course, at funerals. And it's, it's a way to express universal human sentiments in a way that someone else has done more beautifully than I, I ever hoped to, could ever hope for. So they've said what you would like to say or, or think in a way that if you can't say something or think something mm-hmm. about something important, then it must be frustrating for you. So would you say that's part of it? It allows you to experience being human better? I think that's actually a really nice way of saying it, experiencing being human better. Yeah, I think that, you know, poetry is something that people reach to when they want to understand the world better. Like when when someone dies, Mm -hmm. that's about as 
upsetting and, and difficult to grasp as, sure. as anything, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that people write poetry out of those great moments of trying to understand and trying to make sense of the world. You know, I think it really functions both ways. I think it is, a, you know, an incredibly, I, I don't know what the word would be. It would, it, it's a form of writing that really allows... Uh, a know, release, maybe? A release or a and almost the ultimate kind of creativity. Allows them to be human. Mm-hmm. Poetry can really conform to or shed all of its rules. Language can be continuously reinvented with poetry, and that's something that we see in the pages of the magazine and over the evolution of the kinds of poems that were published in the magazine over the years. And, you know, it's um, just an incredible, vibrant, very alive form of art. Well, I think, too, just big picture, not not to drag this on too long, but big picture, if people are feeling less frustrated, uh, more human, probably better for society as a whole. Yeah. Um, one of the programs of our digital team, the ones that put together our website, is an iPhone and Android poetry app. And what it is, it's sort of like a slot machine that allows you to choose poems by mood or by subject. And so you can either spin the wheels and have it come up randomly, or you can choose the two moods or the two options. So say you wanted to find a poem about family and joy, you could do that. Or you could find a poem about nature and sadness, and it would bring Mm. up a selection of poems. The question gets asked a lot, you know, like, what role does poetry have in our busy modern lives? In, in, this, in this day of, you know, 140-character tweets, where, where does poetry fit in? And, you know, one of the interesting pieces of feedback we've gotten about that app is how people use it. And they mm-hmm. use it when they are on a long line at the grocery store, and they know that they have three minutes, and they want to... Fill their head with something right. beautiful they or interesting. They want to not be or, at the grocery store anymore. They yeah. want to be inside a poem. They read it when they're on their morning commute, on the train, when you're on a packed L train trying to get down to work. You know, again, that's a time for you to be someplace else and to really take those moments and experience the joy of poetry. So that's one of the interesting ways that people have responded to some of the ways that we've made poetry available. And I think it it does speak to this idea of why poetry and and how it's important and why it's still relevant now more than ever. I mean, I'd like to think so. Well, particularly in light of all of this tweeting, Mm -hmm. which when you think of it, so much of it is just blasted out without thought. And most poetry is well wrought. It takes many, many attempts to get it. Right. Well, I will say that um, social media has been an extremely positive innovation, if you will, for helping us expose and broaden our, our audience to poetry. Small excerpts of poetry actually work really well in that 140-character uh, constraint. And if we are to post a small fragment of a poem with the hope that a Twitter user might follow it back to our page and experience yeah. the whole poem. It's a really uh, successful way of introducing poems to new audiences. Yeah, marketing poems. Yeah, you know, we have a very large Twitter following. We have a large Facebook following. For the uh, centennial year, we started a Tumblr, and that has grown exponentially. Pictures? Ephemera, pictures. The history of poetry magazine is, of course, very visual. Mm-hmm. So it's an opportunity for us to really show some of the more visual elements of poetry. And 
the audience for that has been absolutely explosive. So, you know, we are reaching people in new places and through new ways. That's actually a pretty good segue into the place mm -hmm. here in Chicago, uh, where we're sitting. We're sitting in a wonderfully acoustically refined space here. Mm -hmm. uh, and right next in the hallway beside us here, there's uh, a whole big wall full of uh, the covers of the magazine itself. So maybe we could shift gears now that we've knocked off what poetry is all about and get to this destination here in Chicago as a place for people to visit. What, what have you got here? Sure. Um, before we go into that, I just sure. wanna, I'd just i be remiss if I didn't mention a few other programs of the foundation because I really want to give a, a full sense of, of the work that we do here. So in addition to the website, in addition to the magazine, in addition to events and Poetry Out Loud, we also have a poetry think tank here, the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute, which really works on academic issues of poetry and, and all of these ideas of what you're asking about. Place, audience, new media, all of those things. Again, ways of extending the benefits of poetry. Right. How do world. I bring poetry into communities? How do I yeah. introduce foreign poetry and vice versa? How do, Translation issues, all kinds of things like that. And, okay. and they publish their work in, in book and pamphlet form, all of which is, is typically free. I also manage a portfolio of media partnerships that puts poetry in popular media. So, for instance, we work with NPR to sponsor poetry reporting on the air. Uh, we work with the PBS NewsHour to sponsor poetry reporting on television. Uh, we work with Garrison Keillor's Writer's Almanac, which is a five-minute um, daily program that brings poetry to three and a half million people over the airwaves. In the cases you've just cited, you're pretty well preaching to the converted. What are you doing to get to people who just don't want any part of poetry? Well, that's interesting because the last program that I wanted to talk about was a column called American Life and Poetry. And it is a syndicated column by the former U.S. Poet Laureate Ted Kuzer, which is distributed for free to small to mid-size rural newspapers, community newspapers across the country. So not the New York Times, but maybe the, you know, the small paper in upstate New York. You know, harkens back to the time when poetry was found in newspapers more commonly, but also really does speak to that idea of reaching to places and audiences and readers that may not encounter poetry in other ways. We wanted to go back to that idea of, you know, the newspaper clipping on the fridge. You snip out a poem because it spoke to you in the midst of all of this other news, all of this other noise, mm. found that and it spoke to you in a different way. It stays news. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but back to your question of poetry in place. Very good. Chicago is central to who and to what Poetry Magazine is. And so that this building is here in Chicago and that Chicago itself has such a rich literary history in, in fiction and nonfiction, journalism and all those things. You know, Chicago is an incredibly vibrant literary city. And so we're, with the opening of this building, really honored to be a part of the cultural landscape and the literary landscape here in Chicago. You know, this idea of place, I think, really still goes back to um, Harriet Monroe's hope for the magazine, that the magazine would be a place for poets to publish their work. And while that was a sort of a, a metaphor, that idea has really been realized in this building. As you mentioned, we're sitting in our performance space right now. <laughs> and it's a room that has, in the 14 months that we've been here and open for business, it's seen almost every kind of event you can imagine, from a straight poetry reading to a uh, shadow puppet show to a rock concert to... <laughs> 
you know, panel discussions and everything in between. Well, you mentioned, too, that the, the room itself is designed around the voice. Poetry and the act of reading poetry aloud requires a different kind of acoustical consideration than a symphony hall. This room is really meant to deliver the spoken word to the audience in the most direct and most clear and crisp way possible. One of the ways that we do this is that when a poet speaks in front of an audience, there's no microphone that is in between the poet and his or her audience. The way that the sound is carried in this room is both through the acoustics and the careful consideration of the construction of the space, but also through a sound system in the ceiling that actually pushes the sound back to the back of the room. So there's this idea of not putting any barriers, if you will, between the reader and the listener. What does the room do for the voice, you know, versus music hall or a big orchestra symphony hall what is it that identifies delivering the voice in the best possible fashion one of the benefits of the sound system and the acoustics in this room is that it creates a real intimacy the person who's sitting in the first row can hear as well as the person sitting in the back row. So there's this sense of really being close to... So you don't have to strain. Exactly. So yeah. there's this idea of you know, being able to hear the words as clearly as you know, if the poet was sitting next to you. And the enunciation exactly. and the stresses. And so even though you're in this room with 125 other people, you may feel that you're uh, alone. Being spoken to directly. Exactly. Maybe. And the chairs don't squeak. And the chairs don't squeak, that's right. So when the architect, John Ronan, got the commission for the building, he went to poetry readings around town. And one of the things that John Ronan found was that they tend to take place in ill-suited venues. So auditoriums that were much too large or crowded and noisy bar rooms, which were far too small. But one of the things that he found in those over-large auditoriums was that many of the seats were old and creaky and that people when listening to poetry tend to shift in their chairs a lot and cross and uncross their legs. And so he wanted to find a chair that made no noise. And so he selected a chair that both of us are sitting on right now. Very that, quietly. <laughs> very quietly, yes. That is extremely lightweight and also has no joints. So the noise comes from when the joints get loose. And so they are actually birch fins that are glued together and so they will never make any noise. The only noise you can make with the chairs is if you drag them across the floor or I suppose if you threw them at something. <laughs> but we have not had that happen yet. So it's again another way that the voice is prized, the poetry is prized above all else. When I first took you to this room you said that it's really a room without distractions. You know, there's no visuals, yeah. visuals or, you know, decoration. It's really all about poetry in this room. Well, speaking of the room, we are, we're looking out now at a pathway that I tentatively walked along to get what I thought was the front door. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could speak a bit to the experience of, of approaching the building. Sure. The architect, John Ronan, wanted to create a building that expressed one art form, poetry, in another art form, architecture. And so he did that in a number of ways. Again, this idea of celebration and discovery is really important in approaching the building. One of the things that's lovely about reading poetry but also can be intimidating is that there's no directions. Poems don't come with directions. Poems come and ask you to be bold and curious and to make your own conclusions and to really take from it what is personal important to you. And John wanted to create a building that very much reflected that. So what he did was 
he put the entrance to the garden at the corner of Dearborn and Superior here in Chicago. But the front door is actually not a direct path from that corner to our front door. And what he wanted to do was twofold. He wanted to guide the visitor through the garden in a way that prepared them for the entrance into this space. Uh, we see someone coming in right now who's, who's taking the bold leap. But also to encourage the visitor to be bold and to discover, to discover their own path, if you will. Uh, the way that the garden is laid out is that there are trees and moss strips that really encourage a meandering. There's no way for you to walk in a straight path. But there's no door. There's no obvious door at the corner, is there? Right, and that's and because the door is actually... In our garden. So you're, you're automatically, you're put into a, a very similar kind of space. So for a building that celebrates poetry, you know, there's no verse written on our walls. We haven't carved into stone great excerpts of poetry. You know, it, it doesn't immediately say from the exterior what it is, but he wanted to encourage visitors to make their own way and, of course, also to be curious and to have ex different experiences every time they return. So if you were to get through the garden and then enter into the main courtyard, if you will, mm -hmm. even if you still weren't sure where you were, what you were doing, the first thing that you would see through our glass walls is our library. And so you know you're entering a literary environment and that this is a space that is ab ab about the written word. So the act of walking through the garden is very much an act of preparation. It's still of the city. You can still hear the noise of the exterior. It's connected but, to the life of the city. Right, but it's, it's an intermediary space. So um, the way that John has delineated that is through this 36-foot-tall perforated zinc wall and it sort of undulates and it provides almost like a curtain or a sheer material that separates the garden from the street but doesn't close it off entirely. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's opaque. It's not transparent but it's not a block. Well and that's really interesting because depending on how you approach the building, so not even approaching the garden, we're talking you're out on the street, that wall might appear to you to be completely transparent or completely opaque, really depending on the angle of your perspective. So it's another way that this building, which is a, a building, can still remain dynamic depending on the season, the light, the experience of the viewer. Again, the same thing that you might bring to a poem, you know, that you might see things when you're in a particular mood that you wouldn't have seen in a different reading. John really wanted to create a building that had to be experienced more than once, mm -hmm. and he wanted to um, encourage visitors to come back again and again and to have different experiences. Kind of a curiosity. Uh, Emily Dickinson talked about, uh, there's one of her poems that, that refers to the word slant. You know, it's not direct, blunt. It's on a slant, and as you come past this room here into the courtyard, you walk diagonally mm -hmm. toward a door that doesn't say this is the entrance. Mm -hmm. does it? The garden right now is actually, it's lost a lot of leaves in the last week, but it's going through its own transition. And, and over the course of the years, the trees in the garden will grow tall and it will form almost like a canopy. So a room within a room, if you will. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's an element of the, you know, the changing nature of the space. So if you've made it this far, you're probably going to go in those doors, right? Yeah. So when you walk through the front door, 
you're given a choice. You can go to the right, which is the library, or you can enter into the gallery space and of course then into the room that we are in as well. The whole first floor is open to the public, so a literary tourist would want to come to the foundation for a couple of things. They'd want to come, of course, to spend some time in our library. Our library has 25,000 books of poetry on its shelves right now, including 3,000 books of poetry written specifically for children. So the literary tourist with a small literary tourist in tow should, should definitely come by. The library is non-circulating. It's meant to be a reading room, and it's meant to be a space where people can uh, discover new poetry. Hands-on, right? Exactly. You want people to take the books off the shelves and read them and engage with them. And so, you know, one of the themes of our programs, of course, is this idea of exposing new kinds of poetry to new kinds of audiences, and we can do that on you know, a very large macro level, if you will, with um, a program that's heard by three million people on NPR stations across the country, or we can do that on a very micro level when someone experiences the act of taking a book off of a shelf and discovering a new poem or a new poet. The reading room is filled with light and filled with I think a lot of good feeling in there. It's, it's a beautiful space. Mm. But so it's like sitting down in your, your own library, basically. <laughs> you know, because of the nature of poetry books, they're very thin. <laughs> There's a certain, oh, it wasn't my observation, it was actually uh, Blair Kamen, the architecture critic of the Chicago Tribune, really noted the way that the vertical spines of the thin books of poetry work really well with the horizontal lines of the shelves. So it's just a really pleasing space. It's a very ordered and, and beautiful place. Place. Well, you see a lot of that in the architecture, too, mm-hmm. don't you? A lot of vertical and horizontal lines crossing Absolutely. each other. The library has also resources for people who are looking for more about poetry. There are uh, listening rooms and viewing booths so that people can take advantage of the resources, both on our website and that we have here on site. The building continues into the gallery space, which is a dynamic space that changes often. So the literary tourist may not see the wallpaper that you're describing right now. It's gorgeous. So cool. With, as you say, with the various covers throughout the years, but they may experience something different and equally profound. We've been in the building, like I said, about 14 months, and, you know, over that time we've had different kinds of exhibitions. We just had a poetry and comics exhibition that looks at those two seemingly incongruous forms and and took a very serious look at it. We've had an exhibition on poetry chapbooks and the evolution of chapbooks. So, you know, we have had all kinds of different exhibits and we plan to continue to have interesting exhibits. So on the ideal visit for the literary tourist, they would then come into this room and experience a poetry reading and a poetry event. And you've got quite a few of them going every month. Yeah, that's right. We have, October has been a particularly busy month for us, as you can imagine, because it's the centennial of the magazine. We have events several times a week, and they are always free and open to the public. We have regulars at our at our events, because they're people that come from the neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what we hoped would happen. Chicago is an incredibly vibrant place, and I say this as someone that wishes she could clone herself so I could be at multiple openings or multiple readings or multiple events on the same night. And there's there's never a shortage of things to do. But there are certain places that you just think, huh, I wonder what's going on there tonight. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's really what we hoped to become. And I think that we are becoming for the cultural citizens of Chicago. Just in closing, uh, you, you mentioned that now this may just be this month or this year, but you're actually sort of literally hitting the streets. <laughs> A couple blocks over State Street. So maybe you could just 
talk to that a sure. bit. In celebration of the Centennial of the Magazine, uh, the foundation partnered with a group in the Loop here in Chicago called the Chicago Loop Alliance. And what we did was we created an installation or an art project, if you will, of excerpts of poems from Poetry Magazine that have been published in the last hundred years. And we have, you know, for lack of a better word, taken over State Street and put poetry everywhere. So there's poetry hanging from the lamppost banners. There's poetry on planters signs in the planter boxes. There's poetry on the back of news racks. There's poetry coming from speakers in the street. The entrance to the Washington Street L stop is covered with, of course, Ezra Pounds in a station of the Metro. So it's an opportunity for us to not just celebrate the magazine, but to celebrate poetry. So it's both a celebration of poetry, capital P, and poetry, small p. And what we did was we looked for excerpts um, that, again, going back to this idea of why people reach for poetry and, and what, what, what does it tell us and how does it express things that we couldn't say. We looked for poems that, if not spoke directly about Chicago, then spoke about the modern urban condition and all that comes with it. So community, anonymity, all of these ideas of coming together and being a part and, and being a part of a city. But also being lonely, too, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. So one of the um, quotes that we have is a, an excerpt from a Gertrude Stein poem that says, thank you for hurrying through. And I love that because State Street, especially in that area, is a place where tourists come to shop. It's a place where commuters come to catch a bus. It's where workers come to go to work. And it's a, a busy, busy street. The idea of the excerpts was, you know, people can go about their day and can go about their experience walking down State Street for whatever their business is. And if they just happen to glance up and they happen to catch that small excerpt of poetry, and if it helps them see their day through a different lens. Changes them. If they can go about the, the things that they do every day and suddenly see it differently, then I think that that's kind of the magic of poetry and what we wanted to share with people. There are poems and excerpts that are specific to Chicago. There are poets from Chicago. We have Reginald Gibbons and an excerpt from his poem, Trains Above Pedestrians, which is, of course, about the overhead trains here in Chicago. We have an excerpt from uh, a poem by Lee Young Lee, who's a Chicago poet. We have poems about Chicago from a California-based poet named W.S. DiPiero that speak directly about Chicago. But then again, we have, like I said, the Stein that speaks just to the modern condition of sort of where are we going and what are we doing. And so it's been a really incredible to not only go down to State Street and, and to see poetry everywhere. Is it just this month or is it the whole it's year? It's just this month. So Still a great idea for other cities to yeah. have a look well, at. Again, you know, I'm, I'm really attracted to this idea of allowing people to encounter poetry where they may not expect it. You know, that interaction of walking past an excerpt of a poem on the street is a little bit different than memorizing it or coming here to the building and pulling a book off a shelf. But yeah. I still think that it can encourage people to see poetry in a different way. It can be jarring in a, in a good way. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, to hear poetry played through speakers on the street, even if you hear just a word or two, I imagine that people might, it might take them five seconds or ten seconds to walk past the speakers. Maybe they don't stop, but at least they've heard that. You know, this, the noise of the city got more beautiful. And it's so interesting to watch people stop and read the poems. You know, I've, I've gone down there a number of times because I, I love it, but I love to watch how people experience it. And people stop and they take pictures and 
We've heard on social media that uh, I think someone said that my lunch break was much more beautiful today thanks to the poetry I read as I walked down the street. You know, this idea of just prettying up the environment, for lack of a better word, with words. And that's all they are. They're just, it's just words. Prettying, and, but not just prettying. A lot of poets <laughs> will disagree with that, won't they? Sure, I suppose it's you're right. Complicating it. Complicating it or, <laughs> or critiquing it. Or yeah, those are all very true, too. But it's a challenge to people, I think is what I meant by pretty. You know, And the excerpts are challenging and they come from challenging poems but I think that they again are, are delivered in such a way that allows people to take from it what they what they want it comes back again to this idea of you know how do we read poetry and why do we read it well and there's nothing to stop the whole world doing things like this mm-hmm. thank you you're very welcome thank you for uh, your enthusiastic poetic <laughs> introduction to the Poetry Foundation and it's uh, great work here in uh, Chicago Illinois I've been speaking to uh, Stephanie Hillwack, who is the uh, media director at the Poetry Foundation here in Chicago. Thanks again. Thank you.